Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I got this incredible wave of public support and, and positivity, which really took me by surprise because all I was aware of was stigma, right? With every kind of person's tweet or every person reaching out I just felt this kind of weight lifting and um, I just felt lighter and lighter and lighter. Today we are joined by Richard Milan. he is an actor, theatre producer, director, he has been in so many things we'd recognise like Grown Ups, Waterloo Road, you name it he's done it and he's given us such an open conversation about addiction today. He's got a personal journey and a personal story to tell he was on the BBC News quite recently in a coming out capacity about his own journey. And we thought, we got to speak to Richard. And he did. He was so gracious in getting back to us. And, and we had this conversation you're about to hear. Let's get into it. So you're listening to Stop and Search on Scroobius Pips Distraction Pieces Network, brought to you by Acast in association with UK. Here we go. Behind your barricade. Yeah, but how long can I stay? Thank you for joining us and it was an absolute personal honour from my perspective to speak to Richard on this topic. I reached out after the BBC interview that he did and he got straight back and said let's have a more in-depth conversation. That's everything we need to hear in this sector. So we talk about naloxone, Richard's personal journey with dependency, how he got there in the first place. We talk about what society should and shouldn't do, the arts, so much we get into within this hour. And we could have kept going, there's so much more. And I like to think that I'm going to speak to Richard again at some point because he wants to do more. He really does. He has got passion in this subject. He wants to do more to make sure that society gets the grips of the conversations that we need. So please find him on Twitter at Richard Milan and his website is richardmylan.com. And if you want to get involved in the work that we do, then at UK Leap is our Twitter and Instagram and ukleap.org is our Facebook and website. So, yeah, don't listen to me. Richard Byland, he says it all. Thank you so much, Richard. Thank you so much for joining me today, Richard. Um, I read news articles about your your absolutely fantastic way of coming out and saying what you did even now i'm using the terminology coming out which is just everything i, <laughs> I shouldn't be saying but um, if we if we if we could go back to the beginning on this um you, you did you decided to to cut to, i'm saying it again come out and make yeah make i did come statement. out yeah i came i sort of came out of the secret closet 
which is <laughs> the same as any old closet, I guess, who's like a real life. Well, yeah, it's not like, yeah, I guess, what was it? It was, it was coming clean. That's what it was. So in that in itself, it just shows you how much more work we've got to do in society, isn't it? Where you need to make this big statement because you feel like you've been, you know, hiding. Uh, so at what point did you decide to make the statement you did? And obviously we're going to get into the the, the full story. Um, so what was that decision making like for you? It was just a roller coaster, really, you know, because um, when I moved back to Swansea, um, sort of, uh, I've been here a year in May, so that's you know just just over a year. Um, I kind of knew I wanted to face it because I knew that I wanted to work more in a public-facing job. And obviously I I have a public facing job as an actor and stuff. But what I mean is I wanted to be more kind of ingrained in sort of Swansea society and more responsible. So more of a kind of, yeah, more of a responsible role within the city. And I knew um, if I wanted to have that role, I needed to have a, I needed to kind of get ahead any, any negative aspect of my life of which this was a massive negative. Um, and so, uh, so it just took me, it took me a really long time. I knew I wanted to do it, but then actually doing it was, was, it took a long, long time. Um, and, and I wrote a play in the first lockdown in 2020 to try and make sense of it all of that time of my life. And, and I came to the realization that if I wanted to do anything with the play, then, you know, and coupled with the public public job, I needed to um, I needed to deal with it. But then the day I was going to go public, I was here in this theater over in the studio theater. There was a journalist from the BBC. I was sat there in that in that studio space in front of her empty auditorium, camera lights. And even then, I wanted to pull the plug. And if you and if you if you see it, you can see that I'm really shiny. It's because I'm sweating. I'm profusely sweating because I'm that stressed out about coming to terms with the reality of it being in the public domain. And I literally just as I was about to start, I literally kind of there was I literally wanted to put the self destruct button and go. Now fuck this. I, I I'm out. So. Um, but I didn't, and I'm glad I didn't, because it ended up being the best thing I could have ever done. That was going to be my next question was, you know, how was it afterwards when you did that interview? And I'll, if it's all right, I'll get you to actually say what that interview was, because um, obviously we're, we're kind of skirting around the issue. But yeah, yeah what, what was that like? Once you've done the interview, it was in the can, it got released. How did you feel then? Yeah, so... Um, the interview was me coming clean about heroin use. So I'm a heroin addict. I'm a, I'm a recovering heroin addict. And I've been a heroin addict for a huge chunk of my life. So, you know, I've been clean for around 10 years. Um, but I started heroin use in my sort of mid to late 20s. And I'm nearly 50. 
So it's a huge chunk of my life, right? So it's about it's about coming clean about that because you know I'm an actor, I'm a father, I'm a he- um, I'm a I'm an autism ad- advocate, um, I'm a theatre maker, you know, I, like I am I am all those things. But this is one thing that people didn't know about me for obvious reasons. Um, so I did the interview, and when it came out, I got this incredible wave of public support and and positivity which really took me by surprise because all I was aware of was stigma, right? With every kind of person's tweet or every person reaching out, I just felt this kind of weight lifting. And um, I just felt lighter and lighter and lighter. And it was so kind of overwhelmingly positive that I ended up going on the news about two days later because the response was really incredible. But how I felt was more important because... You know, I felt that my it had it, it had an immediate impact on my mental well-being, on my on my on my mental health. So um, I wasn't prepared for that, and um, yeah, it was it was just incredible. So it's really interesting that you say that that you had that wave of public adulation because it, you know, I I personally believe that you do deserve it. It's incredible when you do get a public figure like yourself making such an eloquent case. For what you have so thank you for that alone uh but also thank you the the fact that you give this story you know you're a very very personal account to the public domain do you have you found that you've helped people as well because i can imagine from the, you know, the sector i work in that just for you making those destigmatizing speeches and ways of term term terming this issue as well it does help people inherently it does have you, have you found that personally yeah yeah but you know what the person it's most helped is myself right um and what i found is is that people have this sort of opinion of me or they have a perception you know like let's just take my last kind of big telly job for example i was the deputy headmaster of a school and and actors tend to be judged by their characters so that's a person who's responsible and you know heroin addict does not fit into that narrative, right? So, so, so what it did was, it it kind of burst open that preconception, and um, it made it challenged it challenged people's thinking on what a heroin addict looks like, because people don't really know about functioning addicts; they only know about what they see, you know, on the kind of street, really. And 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 that perception of it, so that you know, all heroin addicts are homeless and just junkies and no good to society, or whatever. But they're, you know, look, I, I I'm one person who 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 went public. There are thousands of professional functioning addicts out there that wouldn't even dream of coming forward. And the point is, is that you know, I managed to navigate my 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 work and career right um through that through that difficult time um so yeah it it challenged people's thinking and and I, and I guess that's why that's where i think that i've helped but like i said the person it helped the most was was me it, and i and i don't mean that in a selfish way i just meant that it, it surprised me how how kind of how much it helped me you know 
How much responsibility do you think that your industry has got in painting pictures that aren't stigmatising? We've had examples recently of feature films with big A-list Hollywood stars that have done the usual stigmatising things like, you know, meth mouth, which is a term which is really derogatory, you know, losing your teeth. And, and of course, that is more linked to socioeconomic reasons why you get meth mouth and you do the actual drug. So there's a lot of depictions in the media about, you know, the salacious nature of, of an addict. Do you think that being someone that's got both sides of the perspective, someone that's got lived experience, which is so crucial, but also someone that's in the media, how do you think the media and the industry is presenting addiction? Do you think we can improve it? Oh, yeah. Big time. Oh, this is a big one because, you know, the media are the the worst culprits for selective empathy, and kind of what they what they consider as sort of socially acceptable. I mean, the industry itself, like alcoholism, is rife in my industry, but it's almost accepted, right? It's almost like part of the job description, um, and I mean that in really general terms, of course, but. What I mean, what, what what I'm saying is, is that alcoholism and and, all, and even cocaine use to a point is kind of socially acceptable, but you know, mental health is getting better, but only recently. And when it comes to opiates, the industry seems to just the shutters come down. And it, and it's, I don't know whether it's because they don't know how to deal with it or, but all I do know is that historically, uh, when, when I was kind of growing up my, you know, and I, I don't mean formative years, I mean, my, my early adult life when I was an addict, I remember hearing stories. There was an actor who was on EastEnders who um, was outed as a heroin addict, sacked, that's it, never heard of him again, right? No support, nothing, just gone. And and then other people that had been outed, nobody come forward because of the fear, right? But people that had been kind of found out were just written off by the industry and therefore society. So they're a massive part of the problem, right? Of why, for the most part, it goes on behind closed doors and why people don't seek support, um, and I really hope that we can challenge that. I mean, you know, not me personally, but I'll certainly be part of the fight. But I hope that we can collectively start to challenge that and have kind of really open and honest conversations about levels of addiction and what's acceptable and what's not. And, that, and, and, and how, how much that is just bullshit, if you know what I mean. You know, that... that um, our empathy response should be right across the board and our and our um immediate kind of our immediate need to support our immediate want to support should be right across the board uh yeah it's so true i've got so many notes written down here one of them is in big letters stigma because it's something we're going to address as we go along because it's something that was crucial within your initial statement but you you hit upon a point there that I really like to draw upon is that you've mentioned you know drug hierarchy you know someone that has, has suffered with heroin dependency like yourself 
feels like they don't get the support and it was a scary thing to come out and say this but alcoholism's fine cocaine use is through every industry um so do we do presumably you know, and i put words in your mouth we do need to think in terms of mental health as opposed to a drug hierarchy surely yeah i think i think we've i think we yeah i mean that's dealing with the root cause of any addiction is looking at mental health right so yeah yeah we need to deal with that but also we do have to challenge that hierarchy and call them out on it call the media out on it when it happens and um but but that that's that's far more complicated so i guess you make a really great point because if we just challenge the root cause then you know the conversations around the hierarchy um become less complicated actually um and you know like i said earlier we're getting better at, at dealing with mental health in general but but in the media um they are getting better so i don't know man i think i think i think it's really bloody complicated but but you're right that's where we need to start is uh is mental health this is why i'm always grateful for someone as eloquent and has got as lived experience as what you've got for speaking and having this conversation and your initial statement as well because it's it's that campaign that you said we need to have the rolling conversations of getting to the root causes and humanizing people and you know as, as i'm sitting here talking to you you're a very eloquent person that's got this lived experience and how can anybody argue with that which is why you've been so personable during the, the process of this whole recording um and it's completely to to your um yeah it, it's a real compliment to your character that you can be as open as this so if it's all right on that little ramble i'm going to ask you to kind of go but right back to the beginning um and it this is going to be a tricky question for me to ask because it's i, I don't want to be triggering but how did you how did you begin that 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 choice of right i'm trying i'm trying heroin what what's it going to be like what was the decision process and how old were you at the time so i mean we need to go a bit further back i mean you know to to start with right i remember being depressed when i was a, a small boy so you know we're talking like five six years old and i certainly remember being depressed then through my teens it became worse so you know alcohol and weed gateway drugs that was that was a no-brainer for me because you know my kind of general day-to-day experience was it was difficult so um i always had to keep busy i always had to keep working i could never switch off and it's because i didn't want to be left in my own head so um you know anything that kind of took me away from that alcohol and weed I was all for it. So by the time I was 15, 16, I was drinking too much and smoking too much weed. And then, and then came speed, um, which, which that, that for me was more of a, I don't know what that did, but um, it, I didn't need something that made my mind race in a way I needed something to take, take me out of my mind you know what i mean so that didn't last very long 
But then, you know, alcohol, I got a job. I went straight from college into the West End. So I was I was on regular money. I was drinking, you know, you're in the West End, so you're working in the nights. You go out every night, you're drinking every night. And then cocaine came along. Um, so I was taking a lot of cocaine. And I was drinking a lot. But again, that's that's just socially acceptable. Like, well, at least within the industry at that time, and we're talking the 90s here, it was, you know, it was fine. You weren't sort of vilified for doing a bit of coke and drinking, you know, a lot of other people were doing it. Uh, it was when I came out of the West End and I didn't have that structure, I guess. And um, I was used to obviously taking a lot of drugs and drinking, but I'd ne- I'd, I, I always had this kind of like, I'm never going to try like really hard drugs. So, you know, like crack and, and heroin, I'm never going to be trying those, you know, that's like a step too far for me. Um, but then when I came out of the West End and I had that, that, that kind of loss of structure and I was left then with my own head again and less money, crucially. Um, uh, and I just, I, it was like, my mental health started to suffer a little bit at that time, which it did It's in sort of peaks and troughs, but it really started to take a dive. And uh, I remember like one night I'd had a couple of drinks and, uh, you know, a mate of mine had started dabbling in heroin. And I was like, what the fuck are you doing? What are you doing? Am I allowed to swear, by the way? Yeah, go for it. Yeah, whatever you, okay. whatever language you want um, to put it in. It's a bit... It's a bit late, but yeah, I thought I'd ask. Um, I was like, what the fuck are you doing? You know, like, this isn't you. And he's like, well, actually, what it was, was um, I got told it was opium. And uh, so I didn't really connect the two. And I kind of believed him. Because opium, it's the same thing, right? But when opium was in in our heads at the time, was this kind of far, this sort of, Far East kind of thing that you smoked in ornate pipes. And do you know what I mean? And it was like, you know, it wasn't street heroin. So he kind of got duped into it, but obviously he really liked it. So I was like, nah, man, you're, you're, you're just, you're, you know, I I don't understand you anymore. And that went on for ages. But then this one night where I'd had a few drinks and I, and I was going through a period of quite a dark time in, in my mental health. I just went, well, let's let's just see what this is about then, right? (laughs) And uh, he put it on the foil, lit the the lighter, and the kind of brown powder turned to a brown liquid. And he he stuck the kind of foil straw in my mouth and he went, "Just, just chase along as I go along. And I just chased along like that. He said hold it in and then breathe out. I held it in. And when I, when I exhaled, the first words that came out of my mouth was, oh fuck. Because I knew immediately that I was in trouble. I just, this, this feeling came over me that just took away all that stuff that I just talked about. It took it away like that. It, it took all my, all my emotional pain, all my past trauma, everything gone like that. And I felt fucking tremendous. I felt like 
on top of the world. I felt I had a, it was a feeling I'd never experienced. So I was in trouble immediately. Yeah. So, so there's two things on the back of that that, that spring out is straight away. We, we spoke about drug hierarchies and you, and you mentioned it there, you know, the fact that believing it was opium, um, it's, it's something that does exist. You know, we've got a, a politician who I do respect in Rory Stewart, who famously did opium at, a, at an Easter wedding ceremony. But if you can you imagine, and it, it got in the media and in the headlines, but can you imagine if it was a politician that was, that was shooting up in, in a, in a Scottish hotel? Yeah. It's, it's, it, that's where we're talking about drug hierarchies. Yeah. It, the perceptions around the drugs themselves are so key to how the media and society hooks onto it. Um, so that's what that's one thing that's, that's sprung to mind. But the other thing is that you've been really eloquent in expressing how you know the the noise in your head was something that you wanted to get a disassociation from. So therefore, certain drugs weren't helping, like speed wasn't helping that. So the fact that you did find heroin was that the one? Was that the one that was uh, enabled you to self soothe and get that disassociation? It was like it 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 did what. Nothing came close. Like, so we did it a little bit. Alcohol did it a little bit, you know, numbing to a certain degree. But, but this, this drug is so powerful at dealing with emotional pain and physical pain as well, by the way. So like, you know, I mean, it's a painkiller, right? It's a, it's, it's opium is a poppy derived mood enhancing painkiller. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting when you, when you took, when you were just talking there, because like, yeah, like opium, oral morph, morphine, heroin. Put it this way. When I first tried it, I was like, I need to treat that like a fine wine. Not, not I can never touch that again, which would have been the, 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 kind, of, the, the kind of rational response. It was, no, I need to treat that really carefully. Treat it like a fine wine, which I, which I tried to do for, for, for a while, you know. But then my, fi- my, my, my fine wine treats were like going from once, a, once or twice a month to once a week and then once every three or four days. And it's only when you, you, you hit it consecutively, right, that it gets its claws into you. You know, I, I'd probably done it so three, four days in a row and then found out I was really irritable and like really just didn't feel right. And that was my first experience of withdrawals, even though I didn't fully understand it at the time. But yeah, it was it, it 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 did so much for me in that respect, you know. Like, uh, I just i I get why people that are really struggling come across that drug and and it gets its claws into them immediately. I understand it completely because it's ex- that exact that exact thing happened to me. One one of the things that we don't talk about, and we certainly haven't got the bravery to talk about in society at the moment is how the drugs themselves can serve a purpose. They can potentially become a raft of survival to some people, especially people in cycles of high dependency because of abuse uh, and because of traumas. Is there any point during your whole um, endeavours within substance use, was there any point that it did help you and there was rafts of survival within it? Unfortunately, yeah. So... What what I'll say is that there there were there were periods of my life where my where my mental health was so bad, it was like 
crisis point and, um, you know, debilitating, right? So um, I often think back on that period of my life and think if it wasn't for heroin, which is so weird to say, <laughs> but if it wasn't for it, I wouldn't be here. So, like, it certainly numbed my emotional pain enough for me to exist to a point where um, I could, there was enough time and space to get the other side of it. So, like, it was almost like the, the drug helped me to unplug um, and then sort of just, I don't know. It's it's weird to think about it, but it is true, right? It did serve a purpose at that particular time. I mean, now let's be real about it. I, I used for many, many years, right? Um, but there was a time where it was that real crisis point. And uh, yeah, yeah, it, it, it saved me then. But then the flip side of that is... I reduced to the point where I didn't care whether I lived or died. So it saved me on the one hand, and then it would get me to a stage where I didn't care either way. So if if anyone's thinking, oh, you know, well, maybe that's my answer to get through some, don't even think about it. Don't even think about it. Because, it, you know, regardless of which way you plug in, it will get you to the same point. And that's in a deeper hole than you began with. So I find it interesting what you just said there of the way that you, you handled your consumption. You know, the fact that you, you straight away went in with an air of responsibility of, you know, and this, if you, you use the term yourself, a functioning addict, you used it at the start of this conversation. Um, and that's something that you quite often find is that you do get people in society that can mask their addiction. You know, they, 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 they're going to be walking amongst us like a, you know, like a zombie. <laughs> and that's a ridiculously stigmatizing thing to say. But what I'm trying to get across is that's how society perceives it, is that you've got one addict that is that that stereotypical zombie that we see on the streets. Um, and please don't use the term zombie. I'm using that for the sake of the point. But on the other hand, you've got the people that are industry professionals. And this is where the stigmatization comes in. We're, we're dealing with two different people that have got exactly the same plight, and that is mental health. So from your perspective, when you did go in with that era of responsibility and you said it started to break down, did you manage to keep up that 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 self-tempering on, on your consumption for long? Or at what point did, did it start increasing for you? So I used to use it under the guise of up in the hills. So when I said I was, I'm going up in the hills, it meant that my mental health was taking a dive and it was an excuse to unplug Right. So my circle of friends knew that I wasn't feeling well and I needed to take some time. Um, that was kind of one way I used to do it, because like like I said, it started like a fine wine thing, you know, slowly got its teeth into me. And then I realized, OK, so so I'm not going to be able to just take it and leave it. It's going to have to be periods of time where I'm using and I'm going to have to manage that time carefully. 
you know, I have to take things into consideration. What jobs are coming up? Can I do those jobs? Are they in front of the camera? Are they behind the camera as in voiceover work or, um, you know, or, or, or R&Ds or script work or, you know, anything else that an actor might do? Um, Theatre to a point, right? Because, you know, uh, let's, I'm just going to have to just be real about it. Uh, um. But, you know, there, there's, there's a story that really, there's something that happened to me when I was really young that really stuck with me, right? And that was, I, was, I, was, I went, to, went to school in, in London when I was 12. I went to, um, like, dance school, performing arts school. It's called the Erdang Academy. It's still there now, but it's, it was in Covent Garden at the time. And now it's in um, Near Angel. But it was in Covent Garden, so my nearest station that I was using was Leicester Square. And I, I used to get the, the tube home every night and there used to be this um, homeless guy on one of the, one of the um, exits. And halfway down the stairs, he had like a, a piece of cardboard saying, homeless, please help, blah, blah, blah. And he'd sit there with his head down. And I was, I'd see him every day. And I, and I was walking down the stairs one day. And um, it was like, it was so weird. He was there like that. And he just sort of looked up. And then just went into his pocket like that and um, and did that and reached out. And there was this guy with a briefcase, literally just palm, like did a, did a hand swap thing, like a tenor, and he gave him like um, a syringe, like sterile syringe in its wrapping that he's obviously getting from, you know, a needle um, exchange. And... It was a really quick exchange. But this guy had a briefcase and a suit on. And it just didn't marry up. You know what I mean? I'm telling you that story because that stuck with me when I was beginning to use. Like, it always fascinated me that that guy was clearly existing as an addict. But it didn't fit the narrative of, you know what I mean? So, like, it almost became like, it sounds really kind of, crass to call it a game but it became a kind of it became a kind of was it a game or was it more like just it was like cat and mouse i guess but 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 it was more like i was i was managing it managing in it right and um um guys weird i've not really spoken about this uh so i would use it there would be like this reward mentality. I'd work, earn money and use for a long period, clean up, work, um, uh, you know, and then use, work, use. There's this constant battle of like using and getting clean. But then the periods between became sort of blurred. Do you know what I mean? Um, where like, uh, you know, I would like, I, I'd push the envelope that little bit too far. I would, I'd, I'd go right. Okay, I'd I'd go into the audition room under the influence, or I like I said, I do I do a voiceover under the influence, and and slowly my life kind of started to unravel in that way, if you like. And so then, for whatever reason, they can't quite put their finger on it, but you be but you become less reliable, so your opportunities become less and less and less, and your agent relies on you less and less and less. Yeah. So your periods where you're not working are longer, so inevitably you use longer. And that's kind of what happened to me, yeah? 
Um, you know, I didn't have a nine to five, so I didn't have that structure. Um, and people clearly exist uh, um, that way. Uh, for me, it was this kind of, it was this constant um, managing exercise. Would you have any, and again, I'm not asking for any kind of whistleblower on this, but we've mentioned that the arts does have quite a, an appended um, nature with, with drug consumption, whether it's alcohol or other drugs. Have you witnessed much of that in your career of people that have gone through similar things to what you've been through that aren't necessarily being as honest as what you've been? Yeah. Yeah. A lot. I mean, you know, in terms of heroin use, no. But there are other things that, um, yeah, that people are, you know, it's, yeah, it all comes down to these are people that are just suffering with their mental health, you know, and they're just trying to, you know, medicate against it in whatever way, whether that be painkillers or, you know, or, or or drinking or cocaine use or, or you know, even weed to a point. Um, yeah. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Which is why it's so important that we have conversations like this because the overarching theme is stigma and this is something that you addressed in the original BBC interviews. The, The reason that you wanted to say what you did is to address the stigma and hopefully help other people when you witness that in the industry and people presumably suffering in silence what can we do to address the stigma do we need more open conversations like we're having now and that you gave the bbc yeah i think i think we need to address our our empathy response um in general that's the whole of society um right down from healthcare right down right actually from the government through healthcare through right down um, you know, we call them me, me and my team, we call them the visibly invisible, um, as well. Like, so, um, it's like a lot of the problem is kind of swept under the carpet. Um, 
but you know, I t- let's let's just take like um, naloxone for example, right? Which is a drug that can stop a person on heroin ODing. Yeah, so with with naloxone, there's a lot going on with it. Where there's a lot of call for police services to be carrying it. Even in Scotland, there's uh, cab services, taxi services that are going to be carrying it. So there's a lot of work going on with naloxone. It's, it's interesting that you bring it up as well because not a lot of people know about naloxone. So the fact that you have brought it up and awareness around it. So what's your perspective? What what have you learned about it? And you know what what's your general take? Well, naloxone basically is like, um, you know, it's, 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 it's a kind of peer-led program for the most part where every ad- addict in the system is given um, a naloxone kit. Now, that could be the nasal spray or it could be a preloaded needle in a little yellow box, um, which is, you know, what's given to me. Um, and, they, and they're basically there. So the, when, when somebody ODs, when somebody goes, either stumbles across a strong batch of gear or or takes too much whatever it is if they go over the top then you're you're there on hand because these um pre pre-loaded needles they can be injected anywhere um in the thigh in the arm you know it's not like pop fiction where they you know they get jabbed in the chest um and 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 they're super important they save lives and it's it's good that there's sort of peer ownership over that. Um, I I have a slight issue with it in that the public doesn't know about it. You know what I mean? It's like, why aren't we championing this, right? So like, why is it being? Why is even that being swept under the carpet? Um, you know, that that's my issue with it. And then you know, the more a more cynical person would be like oh well that's just like okay that's that's obviously you're taking away them an ambulance being called and them being admitted to a and e right so you know our, our nhs is under incredible strain so like you know it's alleviating the nhs from a problem and yet the public don't know about it it doesn't add up to me something doesn't add up right so um you know me personally, I I, I, I want to shout about naloxone and 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 um, the fact that it saves lives and uh, yeah, yeah. It, what I mean is that it's a positive aspect to 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 addiction, um, and and yet it, even that is not in the public kind of not domain. It's just like it's just I don't know. I don't know what's going on with that. The fact that it is peer to peer, as you said, it's been it's been created through people like yourselves through through your own personal narratives. That's quite inspiring work in itself, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. Yes. I I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. And you yeah. say you've, I, actually, you've actually got a kit yourself. Yeah, I do. I do. I've never had to use it, um, but but uh, you know, yeah. I mean, you know, I've, I you, I'm always offered one. Um, and because obviously you don't have to, you, you don't use it on yourself, obviously you use it on, you know, like if, if, if say it's kind of like being a first aider in a way, like if you, if you're walking through the street and you see somebody and they're clearly OD and then you've got, you, you know, you don't have to go through this big sort of learning process to, it's just a simple jab and that's it. They're, 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 they're okay. Relatively speaking, of course. 
um, yeah, I think it's wonderful, and I and I I think it needs to be championed more. It's it's the same thing as defibrillators that you see on high streets, you know, and in shopping centres. It's that same first response to save someone's life, you know. In in a way, it's the most it's the essence is the most beautiful thing in the world. Is that it dispenses all the stigma at that point, and you just need to save that person's life. That in itself mm. is, is is just so pure, isn't it? Yeah, I, th- I think it's really interesting what you say about that, the fact that in Scotland they're giving it to cab drivers as well, because obviously cab drivers are a massive part of the drug network. You know, in terms of addicts, you know, cabbies need fares, right? <laughs> a lot of cab drivers will say that addicts, they're, they're quite lucrative for cab drivers, you know? Um, and and that, I'm just that's just being real about it. So like uh, it's 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 funny that you said that because that makes total sense to me that a cab driver would have it because the amount of times I've used a cab and the amount of times my fellow addicts we've all been in cabs all all loading up together you know uh, going to some crazy address out in the middle of nowhere and here there and everywhere you know what I mean it's better to pool and pool your resources so yeah yeah that 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 just makes sense to me and you mentioned within that about the government response. And this is something I wanted to ask you about because within the realm that I work in, the government response has been pretty atrocious. You know, the, the stigmatisation that's coming with it is just the, the exiting Home Secretary has been one of the worst we've ever had. You know, we're talking in terms of let's go after the middle-class cocaine users because they're the scourge of society now and all of these kind of things. Um, how can we change that? Is it going to be a bottom-up style of reform where the conversations that we have in filter in and get up to government level? You know, what, what's your position on that? I think, I, well, I, I don't know how effective a kind of filter-up thing would be, really. I don't know. I think we need something a bit more kind of a bit more radical and and I've got to be honest with you I really don't know what that is but um I think that 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 um you know the kind of the conversations that we're having um there needs to be that kind of joined up thinking and and a bit more of a galvanized kind of approach um and response like I don't have any answers is what I'm saying to you, right? All I know is that I want to champion all forms of addiction. Champion, that's not the right word. I want to fight for all forms of addiction and the root causes of those, the, that addiction, which is mental health. I've never met one person that's in a cycle of addiction that has good mental health. So we've got to deal with the root cause and we've got to deal with the way that we um, respond to it as a society, right? Those things definitely need to change. And I don't know whether that's through talking, um, but through um, sort of a galvanised effort at, at government level. I don't. I really don't know. I don't have the answers to that. As as we're speaking, you're in a, a Swansea top. Um, and we got a, we got an audience around the world. So anybody that doesn't know that, yeah, you're, you're from Wales, um, and Wales has got a pretty forward response in in when you look at it in conjunction with the rest of the uk you know scotland's coming through now as well but there always seems to be quite a reasoned conversation that happens in wales have you mm. found that you do get a different response in your home network to what it's like you know presumably you work in london a lot is there a disparity on how how those two wells collide and and converse i think so yeah i think so I think Wales is, um, they seem to be a little bit more kind of 
less judgy in general, right? I mean, don't get me wrong, Wales and, you know, Cardiff, Swansea, they have really big problems with opioids and benzos and like everywhere else in the UK. But in terms of the wraparound care, Wales seem to be slightly better, Um, you know, yeah. And that's a really good point to pick up on. You mentioned wraparound care because you you mentioned the services quite a lot in in your advocacy. So if you was to design a care program or just a different way of doing things, what would the services look like under your watch? That's quite a big question. I'm fully aware. <laughs> well, you know, like 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 there's a company called Advariad and there's Pobble and there's lots of people here in Wales that are doing really great work and they're dealing with the root cause. Um, but then, you know, things like the Bouvedal program, which has been massive for me personally, right? I'm on the Bouvedal program, so I'm not strictly drug free. I'm in recovery, but I'm not strictly drug free. And the Bouvedal program is basically buprenorphine. And buprenorphine, what that does is it floods my opiate receptors and stops me craving opioids, but also acts as an antidepressant on some level and 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 keeps me in on an even keel. Um, I hope to be free from that one day, completely drug free. But but you know, I've got to be realistic. My 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 drug use was so kind of significant that I'm going to need to be on this program for a while. But I, I started on buprenorphine tablets and you start off going after I had to go to the pharmacy every day. The pharmacy used to watch me put it in my mouth and then, you know, I'd have to go to that pharmacy every day. And then when I was more stable, I used to go once a week and pick up pick up a week's supply. But that 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 continued then for years and years and years. And if I wanted to go abroad, I'd need a letter from from the doctor and I'd need, um, you know, the, all the right documentation, the right corresponding prescriptions, etc. And I'd, need, I'd have to go to the doctor every six weeks, reload, get scripts, take those scripts to the pharmacy, pharmacy every week. So, again, like, it's more freedom than the beginning, but, you know, then the Bouvedal program came into play, and that was life-changing because the Bouvedal program is basically um, slow-release buprenorphine, a monthly injection, no prescriptions, no doctors, nothing. I go just up the road from here. I go get my injection of Bouvedal and that's slow release into my system and keeps me even for the month and um, and keeps my brain away from harm it, on many levels in terms of mental health, but also in terms of addiction. So those kind of programs, I don't know who started that, but I know that Wales is 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 um, one of the leaders as well. So um, it's it's those kind of programs that gives gives that doesn't keep addicts sort of compliant and chomping on a never ending carrot within a within a regulated system. It's it gives them more autonomy. It gives them more of their life back. It gives them more control and allows them to reconnect more to who they are, to who they were, to who they are, right? And that coupled with the kind of um, therapies that deal with root cause 
and 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 give you the coping mechanisms i think it's it's kind of like a strong mixture of those two kinds of policies that are going to have the biggest impact I, th- I thank you so much for giving that answer because I, to get an insight into someone's recovery process is, is deeply personal. So thank you for giving that insight. And you mentioned the word connection. Uh, and I quite often quote uh, Johan Hari, a friend of ours, who says the opposite of addiction isn't sobriety, it's connection. And and this is what we're broadly talking about now is that it's not about the drugs. As we mentioned, some people need abstinence. It doesn't work for everybody some people need other ways of substitute treatments and they can work for people not necessarily it's it's such a broad spectrum and that's why you do need these wraparound services that cater for everybody's personalities so on on that broad point would you agree with that that it's that connection is the main thing how do we get people plugged into being into a happy society fulfillment within their own body is that the root causes here that we need to address yeah 100 percent so if we're dealing with stigma, then then we're alleviating pressure on, on addicts seeking recovery for a start. And we're relieving the pressure from um, uh, that, that, that cycle of recovery. Um, so that stigma. But then, you know, like I just talked about programs that give people a bit more kind of control. But then it's about lifting people up in recovery, right? And going and literally clapping them Whooping them into connecting to who they are, and like you know, that's what I'm. That's what that's what I want to do here in this city, right? That's what I'm big on is giving the people that um, I can relate to, giving them the chance to reconnect to their hopes and dreams. Because t- people tend to be defined by recovery a little bit too much, and and I, you know, I, I want us to get to a point where. Yes, that does define them, but it's it's more about, like you said, those connections. It's about it's about making those connections, rebuilding those connections, rewiring them back to to their hopes and dreams and aspirations, because they can be any age and plug back into that. And I'm a big believer in that. You know, I'm not kind of just I've got my head in my ass about that. Um because, you know, I'm pushing fifty, right? And 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 I've been an addict for years and my career kind of, I did really well, don't get me wrong, but I could have, you know, it could have been a lot more, it could have been a lot more consistent and stable, but that was, I, I did, I did that to my career. But when, when I, when I was in recovery, I was like, I'm plugging in, I'm thinking big, right? I, I, you know, wh- why shouldn't I? So you know, I, I'd love to start a theatre company. I'd love to run a theatre one day or help run a theatre one day. Um, and I'd love to be able to affect my um, immediate community and and try and help to support and change lives within those communities and, and um, create opportunities, etc. And I'm doing that. I am doing that. So I've literally plugged into my hopes, dreams and aspirations, reconnected with them, and I'm firing on all cylinders now. So I want that for everyone else who's in, in that cycle of, of, of recovery um, or, or, or about to plug into it or any addict that's listening to this who's in the throes of it right now. I'm telling you that I know people say it, but there is, there is light at the end of the tunnel and you can connect to who you once were. It's still there. It's just possibly lying dormant for a while. It's still there. I'll just scribble down the word work because 
you're so clearly passionate about your industry. How much does work now take a place of where uh, heroin uh, has left? You know, are you throwing yourself into that? Does that give you the the buzz that that you need from from life? Yes. Yep. It really does. I mean, like, you know, I, I'm effectively doing a nine to five now, right? And I never thought I'd be doing that. But I'm working in a theatre. I'm being creative. I'm I'm creating creative opportunities. Um, I've got more creative control as well, right? Which is what a lot of us freelancers crave is more creative control. So I'm in the best place ever in terms of my career and personally as well. Um, and it is a drug, is my it is my drug. I love it and I'll never stop loving it. Um, so yeah, yeah. And, it, and if you don't, you, you mentioned there that you know your support base as well. If you don't mind me asking, what how how much did people know about what you was going through in your personal life? Were, were there people that you trusted, or did you try and keep everybody out of that side of things? Yeah, I I really kind of kept people out. There there wasn't many people that I trusted. Um, I mean, people just knew, right? Because I couldn't, you know, like the the, the inevitable the inevitability of it, right? So, you know, like if I'm using, then I've got a score, obviously. So, uh, how do you, how do you score? You have to you have to plug into fellow users, and then so they know, and their circle of friends know, and the dealers that you go to, they know, and it just the the circle the bubble gets bigger, right? So there was certainly uh, a lot of people that knew about it. But in terms of me telling people personally, no, no. It was because I'd been burnt in my life as well, where I had told people and I'd literally been shunned and let down by people that I, that, that really mattered to me. And then I met my wife, Tammy, who I told really early on. And she was like, we will deal with this together and like unconditional love and support. That was the game changer for me. Now I'm not saying that that's what everybody needs because you know, horses for courses and all that. But for me, that was the game changer. That kind of unconditional love and support was something that I'd possibly been craving for for most of my life. So yeah. And she's been with me ever since and with me every step of the way and is my rock. And, um, you know, even sort of, you know, facilitating, well, not facilitating, but supporting me on this new sort of journey where I am now. Not working in a bar, by the way, but in a theatre. Um, yeah. I'm so, I'm, I'm incredibly lucky to have that. I really am. And I guess that's why I want to help other people. Do you know what I mean? Because I know that my support would be unconditional. Yeah. It makes so much sense. And, and the lead on from that question was w- w- when you did make that statement in, in the news, uh, it was in May, I think it was, was there anybody around you that came to you and was surprised or gave you reactions? What, what kind of personal take did you get? It's kind of a mixture, really. A lot of people was like, Ah, okay. Now, now some things make sense. A lot of people were genuinely shocked, but for the most part, they were just like, "Well done, you. Um, good for you for getting ahead of it." 
not getting ahead of it for owning it. And that's what it was, right? I'll tell you this quick, quick story. I was in a, I was in a, I was in a, I was in a place really high up in this city, right? And, um, and, uh, I was used to being welcomed and, uh, and, you know, I was talking about those circles of people that bubble that went out and more people knew. So it filtered through to, you know, and, uh, all of a sudden I just wasn't welcome there. And it was literally like a tap being turned off. And that was like stigma in effect, right? And um, that was horrible for me because like that happened years ago. And that, and that, and that, that was like, that one thing was like solely responsible for keeping me locked away um, from it for so long. So at any point through that lifestyle, if you don't mind me crudely terming it that, was you ever worried about the criminality or even the expose that you'd get in the media? You know, we, we've had so many cases of, of of celebrities, actors, presenters that have been put up in, in, in public trial because of what's been going on in the media. Was there any point of you being a public figure that was worried about the criminality or the exposés? Yeah. Yeah, I was constantly worried about that. Um, you know... It, I'm I, like I always consider myself really lucky for getting through all that time without being arrested, um, and I I came really close a few times. I remember once I was here at High Street. I was scoring in, in this city. This before I moved back, and I was like I'd found a dealer, and and so it was like a regular. I was making regular pickups. I used to pick up. Um, I, you know, I had the disposable income to pick up, you know, bigger chunks, right? So I was making trips. And uh, I remember like third or fourth trip, I was outside the station, sort of sat down waiting for a lift. And this car rolled up. And I just, like, you know, you just get this sort of sixth sense about plainclothes police, right? And um, this car rolled up and they they just looked out the window like this. Right, this is what it looked like to me. They were passing me like that, and they and they just went like that, as if to say, "We've got you on all these cameras here, and we can get, we can pick you up at any time. So watch your step, right?" And it was like a real, I don't know, it was a wake up, wake up call in a way. Um, but I was constantly worried about being arrested, and I was constantly worried about somebody going public. And not that it would have been like, you know, I wasn't like a huge star. It wasn't like a scoop or anything, but it would have still been clickbait. So, you know what I mean? It would have still been newsworthy. Uh, so I was I was really worried about that. So I guess all those things kind of kept this weight on me and this sort of, you know, like be, me being a sort of public figure within um, autism advocacy and doing good things in that arena. And, you know, like nobody knowing these things about me, it was just all weight. And that's what I mean when I say earlier about when I went public about that weight being lifted and how incredibly freeing that that was. Um, yeah, but I'm I'm lucky that I didn't one get arrested and two die. For someone that's got the lived experience that you've got, what advice would you be giving to someone that is that's listening to this conversation, suffering the very things that you've been suffering? 
how can we make sure that they get away from the stigma? What can we do in society to lessen that stigma? Just what would be the broad consensus that you'd give to someone that's listening and wants to do more, both in terms of if they haven't got an addiction or if they have got an addiction? So if you have got an addiction um, and you're scared about stigma and, you know, perception, then um, I'm here to tell you that I understand why you feel like that. And I understand how very real that all feels for you. But just take my word for it that it's not going to go down how you think it's going to go down. And the best thing you can do is plug in to, to, to help and services. If you've got somebody who can support you, who you trust, great. But if you haven't, it doesn't really matter because these services are there to accept you in on whatever terms that is and give you support. And that support is more forward thinking than you think and is constantly changing and evolving. And it was the best thing I ever did plugging in because when I knew that I had that support from, from Tammy and I plugged into services, that was step one of like the best thing I ever did. Um, because like all my preconceptions about what that, what it was, they were all blown away. Like, None of it was true. Everything that I thought it was, it just proved to be the opposite. It was, there was so much empathy and so much understanding and I was listened to, right? I was heard. And, and um, I want to say loved. It's kind of like being loved, right? You were just accepted. I was just accepted. And... And if you're a person who's listening to this, who isn't going through that, but knows somebody or works in that area, then, um, you know, the same kind of, uh, I would just say, like, lead with love, listen, value. And take take all the preconceptions, try and just get rid of all those preconceptions and yeah, lead with love. Perfect. That is absolutely spot on. Thank you so much, Richard, for having that conversation with us. Oh mate, you're welcome. You're welcome. It was a real personal privilege to have held that conversation with Richard. That degree of openness and honesty cannot be easy. It must hurt in its own way. So to put yourself out there in a public domain takes a lot of bravery. And I can't thank Richard enough for that. And of course, he's a brilliant actor and theatre producer. So find his work as well. And find him on social media at Richard Milan on Twitter and richardmylan.com. And I'm pretty sure that we'll be catching up with him again at some point. He's really in this for the long haul. He wants to save lives. And one of the thank yous, thank you to John and Tristan, the producers of this show, and thank you to the executive producer, Nikki Elson, who you would not be hearing us without Nikki. You'd just be hearing me mumbling in a sock drawer at some point. 
And thank you to Scrimmage Pit for the Distraction Pieces Network and having us on there. Thank you to my name is Ad for the artwork. Thank you to Johnny Borrow for the theme tune. And you, make sure you subscribe, like, share, and we will massively thank you for doing that. And just as a little note, we released this episode with Richard a little bit sooner than what we was going to because we coincided with Addiction Awareness Week and what a perfect conversation for that awareness week. So if you can subscribe and share and hit notifications and all of that that you need to do, the next season of Stop and Search is coming any week now. It's all recorded. It's ready to go. So let's get involved. Let's have this conversation. Let's push it. Thank you so much. See you soon. Behind your barricades Yeah, but how long can I stay? Behind your barricades Where true values seldom stray up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.